If we are fortunate, some of us get to grow up having looked up to one or two real-life heroes, the people who achieve something great under tough circumstances, who seem to triumph over adversity no matter what the world hurdles at them, or who have such amazing talents that they seem to be otherworldly. And because of this, our heroes can seem larger than life. But what happens when these very same heroes are proven to be all too human, that tragedy can engulf their lives just the same as they can our own? This is Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Shelly. And I'm Stephanie. And thank you for joining us for another episode of Take to the Sky. So if you're just joining us for the first time, it's important for you to know that we are an air disaster podcast. Stephanie and I tell one another stories of some of the most amazing and most tragic air accidents the world has ever known. We do this because we want everyone to appreciate and recognize that flying is so safe today because of these very tragedies and because of the lives lost in the name of learning and progress. Our episodes are intense and even sometimes humorous since Stephanie and I are, in fact, human, and sometimes it's just easier to process tragedy on the scale through some laughter, usually aimed at what we say or one another. And while the facts are important and we want to get the stories right, we are not perfect. That's because we're not experts in aviation or engineering, frankly, in anything related to flying a plane. But we love to fly on planes, and we love to tell stories that we hope humanize the tragedy of air disaster so we can all leave with a deeper appreciation. So welcome, and we hope you continue to join us every week. So Stephanie, I know we've talked a lot about how lives, our lives, everybody's lives mm-hmm. have changed in 2020 for so many <laughs> ways and reasons in every way for every reason <laughs> exactly it's like pick one which one do we want to talk about well in this case think about how sports has changed Ooh, yeah this has been a a topic of conversation in our house my husband adam loves sports he loves all sports we have sports shows on all the time espn definitely a staple yes and too. It has, it's been weird. I mean, it's been really weird because at first it's like you had weeks and weeks of ESPN live coverage of nothing. Exactly. <laughs> you know, there was just nothing to talk about. Well, and then they started to pull like the greatest hits out oh, and started yeah. airing them. So we all got to see the amazing 90s Bulls team back in action, which was amazing. Hey, and- I mean, I'm, I was all for it. I enjoyed some of that stuff. My, um, so Adam is really into tennis. So mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of classic matches recently. We used to travel a lot for, for tennis tournaments internationally. We used to love to go to different places. And yeah, I mean, it's, it just disappeared. Overnight, 100% gone. All, and now a lot of the events are being canceled. That's right. Through the rest of the year. Exactly. And my niece is a collegiate athlete, and she's not even sure if she's going to get to play her senior year. Oh, God. Oh, see, that's a heartbreaker right it is. there. It is. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that have changed with sports. And, you know, before all of this, I think it's probably safe to say that we – we really idolize people in sports. We really look up to their capabilities. Of course. And what they can do. And in a lot of ways, some people actually look up to them as role models, yeah. for sure. And I think because of that, they can seem to be invincible, mm-hmm. you know, so much larger than life that we kind of forget that they are human. Oh, easy to forget that. Absolutely. And- they can do no wrong, you know? But- you But you often see the, the really positive side. You see what they share with the media. 
we're not with them 24 7 so it's very easy to make the assumption that they are superhuman absolutely yeah and at the end of the day we are all human and this is really an element that shows up in today's story and this story takes place in 1958 before we get into it i wanted to share that the resources that i consulted and used to build the story include the following and we're also going to list these on our show notes on the page for this episode I quote directly from Manchester United, a documentary, an episode of Air Disasters, and Wikipedia, as well as articles on Sportskeeda, which I had never heard of before, (laughs) and Golden Times. So the year is 1958. So America is in a recession in 1958, but we still managed to launch our first satellite from Cape Canaveral. The United Arab Republic is created when Egypt and Syria became politically unified. I had never heard of that. Yep. And the peace symbol is created by British designer Harold Holton in preparation for anti-nuclear missile protests. So good to know that the peace symbol as we know it today is actually 62 years old. That gives you a little context of what the world was like in 1958. And also in 1958, the Manchester United football team led by coach Matt Busby, is the most famous team on the planet. I probably don't need to say this, but in case there are listeners that aren't sports fans, and I'm not a huge sports fan in general, but just to clarify, football in Europe is the same essentially as American soccer. Absolutely. So wanted to just bring that kind of into the story. So affectionately known as the Busby Babes, Manchester United is considered to be the most talented group of footballers that Manchester has ever assembled. I like to compare them to, in my very non-technical sports perspective, the 1990s Chicago Bulls basketball team here in America. Oh, yeah. Or the American football team, the Patriots, of Uh, the last decade. I am from New England, so... I'm going to have to go ahead and say go Pats to that. So that gives you a little picture of, you know, how important they were to the world of sports. In 1956, so a couple years before this story setting, Manchester United won the Division League title, and then they did it again in 1957. They were described by the press as being all but unstoppable. So then by 1958, they were fourth in the table, but lost just one time in 13 games. They were again on the verge of another league title. Their victories had lifted the spirits of the British people, who basically in the 1950s, as we can think about, this is post-World War II, and Britain is in deep post-war austerity at this time. So the fans compared having the Manchester United team to winning the lottery. They were a real inspiration and were dearly loved by everyone. Oh, that's really cool, actually. You know, you think about how kind of ingrained they were in the communities and probably a, well, obviously a real point of pride. Right. Absolutely. And one of the key players on the team was Duncan Edwards. And we're going to hear a little bit more about him later in the story. But he's one of the youngest players on the team. He's only 18 years old. And he is seen to be a true great of the game. He's considered to be the team's heartbeat. And United is the first English club to enter the European Cup. And they did so, interestingly enough, by defying the English Football Association Coach Matt Busby saw the cup as the future, and he was right. On February 3rd of 1958, 
The team members, their coaches and team secretary, and journalist traveled to Yugoslavia for a European Cup quarterfinal against Red Star Belgrade, who is in their own right a very talented team. And on field that day, it's freezing cold. You can see in the old black and white footage, the snow's coming down. There are the footballers standing there in their short sleeve jerseys and their shorts, and they're shivering. But they were absolutely determined to win. So United just pummels the Red Star team 2-1 to one in the first half, but the Red Star team makes a fierce comeback in the second half and the game ends as a 3-all draw or a 3-3 tie. But despite the tie, the United team is still 5-4 overall in the quarterfinals and that means that they've earned their way to the semifinals for the second year in a row. So just three days later, on February 6th, the football team, of course, still in very high spirits of the, over the anticipated semifinal matches, they're flying back to Manchester on a twin-engine Elizabethan charter plane for British European Airways, or what we're going to refer to them as BEA. By mm-hmm. the way, there's also a BEA in France. That's their investigating body, like the NTSB. That's not who we're talking about. BEA the airline. is the airline. <laughs> exactly. It's a good clarification, right. actually. I mean, we're not at work, but we're using acronyms. Thought I'd be clear. Exactly. You know? Okay. So more specifically, the plane was an Airspeed AS57 Ambassador, which is a British twin piston engine airliner. The planes were basically referred to as Elizabethans because the term was coined for the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth Mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, And this is considered a very luxurious aircraft, so they're traveling in style. The plane is piloted by two flight crew. The pilot, Captain James Thane, was a former Royal Air Force flight lieutenant, and Royal Air Force is also referred to as RAF, flight Mm -hmm. lieutenant, with an impeccable service record. He retired from the RAF to join BEA. The first officer, Captain Kenneth Raymond, was also a former RAF flight lieutenant and a second World War flying ace. So get this. Ready? He shot down five German fighters, one Italian plane, and a V-1 flying bomb. Wow. He That's joined, impressive. It, it really is, right? I mean, that was impeccable to hear about that. He joined BEA in 1947 and is, in fact, senior to Captain Thane. The great news is, though, they happen to be really good friends, and they fly a lot together. So there's a lot of good rapport and strong camaraderie between the two. Oh, fun. Traveling with the team are also journalists, as they were before, and also a few Yugoslavians catching a ride to the UK. And that really makes a total of 38 passengers and six crew on Flight 609. The plane stops over to refuel in Munich, where there was a recent snowstorm, and the snow from the morning soon turns to melting slush in the afternoon. The pilots decide that Raymond will be the flying pilot on this leg. Even though it's customary that the flying pilot sit in the right seat, Raymond sits in the left seat. Hmm. In the cabin, the mood is joyful and celebratory, as we can probably would all have to imagine. It would have to be. The team and the rest of the passengers make their way on board, and then they settle in for the flight back home to Manchester. At 2.19 p.m., Air Traffic Controller, ATC, gives Flight 609 clearance to take off. So the plane starts down the runway. Then, just as they get to full power, Captain Raymond abandons the takeoff after Captain Thane notices the port boost pressure gauge fluctuating just as the plane reaches full power. What also gave him concern was that the engine sounded odd while they were accelerating down the runway. 
The problem was boost surging, which apparently was actually normal for this plane. It was very common to happen on the Elizabethan, especially while taking off at airports at higher altitudes. Mm. And this happened to be the case right, here. Right, right. What this basically does is it causes the thrust to unexpectedly and too quickly to open. Oh, okay. So inside the cabin, passengers, of course, are feeling the power of the initial run down the runway, but then they're jolted by the sudden stop. And the plane starts to spin, coming to a sideways stop. What would you be thinking and feeling right about this time? I'm thinking about when I've been in cars that have kind of felt, you know, when you drive in the winter, especially if you're driving on slush. Slush is the absolute worst. It is. Ice is bad. I think slush is worse. It is. Because you kind of trust it a little bit more and you shouldn't trust it a little bit more. So it's scary when that happens to you in the car. It's going to be pretty terrifying when you're on a plane. Absolutely. Probably the uh, mood is a little less joyful. In the moments following that. I imagine that took it down a few notches. I I would think it probably did. Yeah. So the captains tell the tower that they've clearly aborted the takeoff. They explain what's happened and they request to try again. So the plane taxis back to the airport to get ready for a second takeoff attempt. Hmm. Captain Thane confirms with ATC that his takeoff clearance is still valid. So the plane gets ready to take off again. Harry Gregg, who is the United team's goalkeeper, says that he pays more attention this time and that others in the cabin were paying more attention to. So to your point, there's a heightened sense of what's going on. Yeah, I think as soon as you have one issue, you are all of a sudden very attuned to any issue, especially when it comes to ensuring you don't repeat whatever happened before. Right, exactly. For the second time, the plane begins powering down the runway. And then, inexplicably, just like before and just as they are about to lift off, the plane comes to a jarring, screeching halt on the runway. So now what would you be thinking? Second time around, same thing. Well, you're kind of maybe thinking, well, maybe third time's the charm. But what you're really thinking is maybe we shouldn't try this right now. <laughs> I, 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 a couple of episodes ago, I told you the story about Dubrovnik and the aborted landing. Yes. We, when we went in the first time and we had to kind of go back up, it's like, ooh, yeah. And they come back and they're like, let's try again. I'll tell you, if they had done that a second time, I don't think I would have been super thrilled for the third time. I would be very uncomfortable at this point. It's unsettling when something like that happens unexpectedly because you know how this is supposed to go. You know the plane's going to speed up. You know that the nose is going to go up. You're going to ascend. And eventually things are going to level out. What you don't expect is something like a screeching halt at the end of the runway in the moments where you should actually just be at full power going, you know, up in the air. Exactly. So the captain comes on over the intercom and explains that there's a fault with the plane. They're looking into it and they reassure everyone that it's nothing to be alarmed about, but that they're going to go ahead and return to the airport. And so with that, everyone disembarks from the plane and returns to the terminal. Smart. So meanwhile, an airport engineer who happens to have watched the two aborted takeoffs, he comes on board the plane to talk with the two pilots about what the issue might be. After the pilots explain to him what they noticed about the boost surge, the engineer tells the pilots, hey, this is normal. All Mm. you actually have to do is reduce power, decelerate the engines, and then take the engines slowly back up to full power again. And the pilots are like, great, we got it. Mm, Okay. So just five minutes after they disembark the plane, all the passengers are asked to come back on board. 
There's a definite sense of fear and unease that is growing at this point among the passengers. I'm feeling uneasy about this, and I wasn't even on the plane. Exactly. And think about it. This is a sports team. They are very normally boisterous and very active. All of a sudden, these same Busby babes are now very quiet, and the tension in the air is reportedly palpable. In Mm -mm. fact... Yeah, wouldn't feel good about this. Johnny Barry, a United player, reportedly says... We're all going to get freaking killed here. And then player Billy Whalen says, well, if it happens, I'm ready. Oh. And Harry Gregg is also afraid. So he's the goalkeeper that we mentioned. But here's the thing. They're all young men. This is 1958. No one is going to voice this fear because, as Harry Gregg said, who has the moral courage to speak up and admit to being a coward? That's how it would have been perceived. That's an interesting way to look at that, too. I think that's probably and I so I understand where he's coming from with something I like do that. Too. You think about all of the times in your life where you knew you should have said something, but you chose not to. Yes. We probably all have examples of that and they kind of haunt us a little bit. But it's interesting to think that in that moment that he would say, I'd really like to get off this plane or maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And of course, not being a pilot himself, he's not a mechanic, he's not an engineer, I'm sure. You know, it's really just a gut feeling at this point, right? It's not like he has any basis for saying we shouldn't be doing this. Exactly. And yet, in so many cases, we know our spidey sense or our intuition is usually very spot on. And I Mm -hmm. think this is something that Harry Gregg realizes looking back at this situation. Oh, of course. So now, with everyone back on board and in their seats, the pilots get ready to take off for the third time. (laughs) They line up the plane on the center of the runway and start their run. They reach full power. Then, predictably, the boost surges slightly. Captain Raymond follows the exact procedure the engineer instructed him to follow. Then they reach V1, which, as we know, is the point of no return, so they can no longer safely abort this takeoff. At 119 knots, or 137 miles per hour, the plane should become airborne, but they never reach that speed. In fact, shortly after reaching V1, the plane's speed mysteriously drops from 117 knots to just 105 knots, but it's not slow enough to avoid what comes next. The plane hurdles past the end of the runway and keeps on going, breaking through a perimeter fence and then crashing into a nearby house and its fuel shed, which explodes into the plane upon impact. Survivor Bobby Charlton, a United player, recalls he remembers the plane taking off for the third time and then going down the runway, and then he said, it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Other survivors said that as the plane ran off the runway and hits the shed, they see a mixture of daylight and darkness and sparks along with objects and things hitting them in the head as the plane collides first with the perimeter fence and then the house and then finally the shed. Many of them lose consciousness during the moment of impact. The plane's fuselage is completely shattered and parts of it are on fire. Harry Gregg, the Irish goalkeeper, comes to and realizes that amazingly he is alive. And at first, he thinks he's the only survivor. Wow. So he crawls out of the space and he immediately sees Captain Thane, who has also survived. And Captain Thane shouts at him, run, you stupid bastard. It's going to explode. Oh, my God. Which I think is a very British thing to say. Oh, it is. But Harry Gregg hears a crying baby from inside the plane. 
So he goes into the plane and rescues the 20-month-old baby and her badly injured pregnant mother. They are Vera and Venona Lukic, both of them who are Yugoslavian passengers who just happened to join the team on the plane. But then he starts to see the bodies of his teammates. In a true show of heroism, Harry drags the bodies of his teammates from the burning wreckage, even knowing that some of the men that he carries are already dead. To him, these are his brothers, and he is not going to leave them on that plane. What a hero. Twice, he returns to the burning fuselage to drag teammates and strangers to safety. Greg rescues United teammates Bobby Charlton and Dennis Violette, who have survived. Of the heroic feats, he says later, You do what comes naturally to you on that given day. I am no John Wayne. I am no different than anybody else. I am a survivor. In addition to this heroism, two German workers jump onto the top of the plane and free Captain Raymond from the wreckage, but the damage caused by the crash is catastrophic. 21 people are dead, among them seven United players. Also among the dead are United staffers Walter Crickmer, the club secretary, Tom Curry, their trainer, and Bert Wally, the chief coach. So basically, the famous Manchester United team is essentially wiped out. Journalist Frank Swift also dies, and unfortunately, though Captain Raymond survives the initial impact and was rescued from the wreckage, he suffers multiple injuries and dies in the hospital five weeks later as a result of brain damage. Oh my god. Only 10 United players survive. Many of them are taken to the hospital in serious and critical condition, and this includes Bobby Charlton and coach Matt Busby, who is in critical condition himself. Harry Gregg, again our goalkeeper hero, saw Coach Busby on the ground right after the crash happened, and he said he saw that one of Busby's legs was completely twisted around the wrong way. Bobby Charlton later awakens in the hospital after a severe concussion, and only then does he learn the fate of his teammates and the enormity of the loss. And when a plane prepares to depart for Manchester to bring the boys' bodies back home, Harry Gregg is there on the tarmac, and he's watching in the dark. You see, he wasn't allowed to be there, but he defied hospital orders to go see his teammates' coffins be carried onto the plane. He said he felt compelled to be there and to bear witness. I mean, are we all crying now or what? I may be. That is heartbreaking. Four days later, the first film footage of the crash makes its way to Britain. And the image shows the BEA plane crumpled into the house. The snow beneath the wreckage is charred black from fire and jet fuel. And people just cannot believe what they're seeing on the footage. One fan declared, at the moment, you don't think there will ever be another tomorrow. So Manchester is clearly a city in mourning. And most of them take this loss like it's a personal one. Like they lost a member of their family And it was stated in the documentary that I watched, they said for that generation, everyone would always remember where they were that moment when they heard about the crash. That makes a lot of sense, though. I mean, you think about how people when you you talk about a sports team, you don't say, you know, the Washington Nationals. You say our Washington Nationals because they are yours. It's a possessive. They belong to you and you're part of them just like they're part of you. Even if you are not actually on the field or on the ice or, you know, wherever you might happen, your team might be playing. So I would assume that the loss 
was every bit as painful and emotional. Even if they didn't have those personal relationships, it still feels like a, f- a friend, a family member, someone you trust. I mean, you trust these guys to go out and bring home that win for your town. Well, I, I think we share in their wins and losses. We're we rooting for do. them so intensely. It's like it's our, we think we can also impact it by cheering for them, right? You so know, if we're behind them, they're more likely to win. And when they lose, it's like we all lost together. So absolutely. This, this even reminds me a little bit about some of the conversations going on now about bringing sports teams back to play in empty arenas or, you know, empty fields. Right. And whether or not that's something that we should do. And I know for a lot of the players, the thought there is we need her fans. We get our energy from our fans. Playing to nobody is very different than playing to people who are there for you. That's right. And so, I mean, I think that also goes to illustrate the connection that not even pl- or not even people feel to their teams, but the members of the teams feel to the people who are there for them. Completely. Completely. So when football games throughout England commenced just days later, one spectator said of the very muted stadium atmosphere, the crowds were black armbands. And as the English saying goes, even the seats were in tears. Ugh. And when the plane carrying the bodies of the seven Busby babes lands in England, people line up in the dark to watch the procession. So like Harry Gregg, People felt as if they had to be there to say both farewell and thank you to the young men who had given their city such hope and promise. And then unspeakably, 15 days after the crash comes another tragedy. Duncan Edwards, the heartbeat of the team, dies. He succumbed to his injuries. He played 106 times for his country, and experts say he would have changed the course of football forever had he lived. He's basically like what I would consider... They're Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, he's larger in life. He's the symbol of excellence. He's at the top of his game. Yeah. But yet so soon snuffed out. So clearly, given this tragedy, there's an urgency to understand what has happened, what basically caused a nation to be robbed of their beloved football players. But the investigation is actually already underway and started just six hours after the crash. At 10 p.m. on that night, investigator Hans Reichel, who's a West German chief accident investigator and a former Luftwaffe pilot and commercial pilot, comes to the scene. This is his first major international accident. And given that this is just a little more than 10 years after World War II, there are also high political stakes here. Both of the pilots were former RAF pilots. Britain and Germany are still on thin diplomatic ice with one another. It's just 1958. So everyone involved in this investigation seems to want to tread lightly. Mm -hmm. Reichel first assumes that the cause of the crash has something to do with ice. In fact, when he inspects the plane at the scene that night, he finds that the only surface of the plane that is free of ice is a spot on the wings near the engines. And he assumes that this exists because the propellers blew off the ice in that area of each wing upon takeoff. So he and his team examined tire tracks, also indicating that the aircraft never got airborne, which reinforces for Reichel that ice in the wings prevented a successful takeoff. Two days after the crash, Reichel interviews Captain Thane, the sole survivor of the flight crew. When Reichel asks him what he thinks is the cause of the crash, Thane responds by saying he believes the plane encountered a large quantity of snow or ice at the end of the runway Mm. that prevented the plane from getting lift, not ice. Interesting. 
Reichel asks Captain Thane if he de-iced before takeoff, and Thane says, well, no, I didn't, because when I inspected the plane before we took off, there was no ice on the wings, only snow. And in fact, he knew the temperature at the time of the flight was 32 degrees, which was not cold enough to create ice. Mm -hmm. And then Reichel starts to focus in on why Captain Thane was not in the left seat if he was the non-flying pilot. Remember... The two of them never switched seats, even though Captain Raymond was the flying pilot. So Reichel asserts that because they were not in the correct seats, this also must have caused even greater confusion in the cockpit and somehow contributed to this disaster as well. Based on Reichel's investigation, the German government opens an official inquiry, and Captain Thane immediately feels like this is a setup, that he is about to be cast as a villain in this story. The big point of disagreement here is about whether ice was on the wings at the time of the crash. Captain Thane said there was not, that it was too warm to form ice, that he could literally count the riblets on the wings. Right. But German experts say that because the plane ascended into Munich from higher, much colder temperatures, that any snow that fell during the descent would have indeed formed ice. But Captain Thane counters that he did de-ice the plane during descent which made the wings warmer, not colder, and hence too warm for ice to form. Sure. So it literally is like this back and forth and completely contrary perspectives and facts at this point. During this inquiry, Reichel produces what Germans consider to be this smoking gun, which basically is a photograph of the plane on the tarmac right before takeoff. It shows a white area on top of the wings that to Reichel and the Germans is interpreted as looking like snow and ice. Also, they say that because all other planes that day de-iced before takeoff and did not crash, but the Elizabethan, which was not de-iced right before takeoff and did crash, that this shows that the pilot made an error. So armed with these pieces of evidence, the German authorities release their findings, Flight 609 crashed because the pilot failed to de-ice prior to takeoff. According to them and this official report, Captain Thane was solely responsible for the air crash. But here's the catch to remember as we tell the rest of the story. If it's ice on the wings, it's the captain's fault. But if it's ice or slush or snow on the runway, then it's the airport to blame. You bet it is. So... Just thinking about Captain Thane right now, I cannot imagine being a pilot in this situation who absolutely does not believe in his heart of hearts that he did something wrong to cause this crash. And yet you have the whole world now looking at you like you caused a crash that killed not just any seven people, but seven of the Busby babes. Yeah, and you know, we we talk time and time again about how the hardest stories to talk about are the human error stories. Because... We are, I think the two of us especially, we are always rooting for the flight crew. We want them to be making good decisions. We want them to be doing the right thing. And any time where the facts point to something went wrong and it could have been prevented, it's a really hard pill to swallow. But this one is especially difficult because there are other factors. And You know, even in addition to the fact that you don't want him to have been responsible for the lives of so many people, but these people, especially, they they mean something to an entire country, maybe even an entire sport. You don't want that to have happened. And to know that there is this side to it where he is positive that he did everything right. I mean, I got to 
be honest, I'm holding out hope <laughs> right now. Like, there must be more. Well, Tell you, me there's you more. hold on to that hope. Okay. But until we get there, <laughs> things are, are really things, grim. Things are bad. Things, things are not are looking really good bleak, for him. Especially for Captain Thane. So the former RAF officer and accomplished commercial pilot with his reputation now in tatters resorts to farming activities to earn money for his family. Wow. Not only is he bullied by the international press, he is constantly haunted himself by the crash, certain that ice on the wings didn't cause the the tragedy. He and his wife, Ruby, sit up every night and talk through the events over and over again, trying to figure out what he got wrong or what he missed. One year after the crash in 1959, the first investigation report from the German authorities contributed to the public perception significantly. The report claimed the aircraft was covered with snow about eight centimeters thick. This could have been brushed aside. The ice was frozen firmly at the wings. And with that, they had placed the complete blame on Captain Thane. Soon, though, Captain Thane decides to launch his own investigation into the matter and find out the actual reason behind the crash. The challenge is, though, that this is 1959 and he has none of the forensic tools available to him that investigators of today have. Oh, sure. The biggest fact that does not add up for Thane is that on the third and final takeoff, the plane speed reached 117 knots and then drastically slowed to 105 knots. Ice does not explain that. Captain Thane thinks that what caused this, in fact, was slush on the runway. When looking at the German claim that other planes took off and did not encounter slush that day, Thane posits the reason for this. Other planes did not have the boost surging issues that their plane had. When Thane, remember, had to accelerate more slowly and then gradually build the speed back up again? Right. Well, this meant he had to use more of the runway. The other planes took off at the normal distance of about two-thirds of the way down the runway, whereas the Elizabethan plane had to use the last one-third of the runway for their takeoff. Without forensic evidence, Captain Thane looks at the only evidence he can, and I think this is brilliant, past plane crashes. He soon discovers that a Trans-Canada flight from nine years before failed to take off when it encountered just two inches of slush on the runway. Following this crash, the Canadian government issued a warning to all airlines that planes should not take off in slush greater than two inches deep. But for some reason, Thane finds that this memo to the airlines was filed away and no action was taken. Ooh. How insane is that? That's pretty, wow. that's a pretty that, big oversight. That seems like a real problem. Real problem. In addition to the previous plane crash, Captain Thane also uncovers witnesses. So remember the two German men who hopped on top of the plane and got Captain yes. Raymond out yeah, of the fuselage? Yeah, the unsung heroes there, yeah. Well, one of those men testified in the German inquiry that he did not see any ice on the plane's fuselage anywhere. But only part of his statement was read aloud to the German authorities during the inquiry. You must be kidding. Another witness's testimony supports Thane's claim of no ice on the wings. One of the ATC employees, who by this time, because it was the third takeoff, they were all watching from the tower to see what was happening, remembers that on the final takeoff run, the plane's nose lifted off the ground for a few seconds like it was about to lift off, but then it suddenly came back down onto the runway, and then the plane crashed shortly thereafter. These statements were not admitted in the ATC employee's testimony to the German authorities. 
what the ATC employee sees mirrors what Captain Thane described in his testimony that the plane's speed suddenly slowed down, preventing liftoff. The only eyewitness testimony that seems to support the German conclusions is the airport manager. (gasps) He says that after the crash, he measured the amount of slush on the runway and said it was only one and a half inches deep, well below the threshold that would cause an issue. But here's the challenge with that. The airport manager only measured the runway in one place, and experts in snow and ice accumulation say that he would have had to have measured several places on the runway since slush accumulates unevenly across surfaces for a variety of reasons. Oh, exactly. I mean, anyone who's ever encountered slush can tell you that. It's bad in one part of your driveway, but fine in another. And remember, if it's ice on the wings, it's the captain's Uh fault. If it's slush on the runway, then it's the airport to Why, yes, it is. And lastly... A significant piece of evidence comes from Ruby Thane, Captain Thane's wife. So you see, it's 19, you know, early 1960s here, but Ruby is a trained chemist and has degrees in chemistry and physics. She sees that the massive amount of fire extinguishing chemicals that were sprayed onto the aircraft caused the snow to melt. So she does what any scientist would do. She conducts an experiment. Ruby secures a sampling of fire extinguisher power, sprinkles it during winter on the hood of the car, since that surface is most similar to a wing surface, Mm -hmm. and finds something startling. When mixed with snow and water, the solution would freeze at a lower temperature than what was recorded at the time of the crash, which was 32 degrees. Basically, as the night got colder, the solution froze in the places where it was sprayed, whereas on the places it was not sprayed, there was no ice. So first of all, go Ruby, because that's amazing. Brilliant. She just explained why there may have been ice when Reichel examined the plane, because he got there five hours later. Right. By then, the solution would have indeed been frozen. Oh, my gosh. So I just want to slow clap for Ruby here. That is absolute brilliance right there. Good for her for thinking that through. Yeah. So with eyewitness reports and now scientific evidence, a new side of the story starts to build up. Captain Thane submits this collection of evidence to the German authorities requesting that they reexamine the first investigation into the crash. What do you think their response is? I'm sure they're not thrilled. They refuse. (laughs) And to add insult to injury, in 1961, BEA officially fires Captain Thane and notifies him of his dismissal for a breach of their regulations because he did not change seats with his first officer. What? Oh, my gosh. That's that's ridiculous. And basically, as you can imagine, the people that are close to him believe this is really a technicality since this was clearly something that other pilots had done on the regular. And they had communicated that. They had had a conversation. It's not as if there were some sort of a transfer that one wasn't aware of. Completely. They discussed it and agreed. Yeah. Yes. Finally, in 1965, the Germans agreed to review the original investigation. And this time, Captain Thane has even more evidence on his side. You see, in the previous few years, the British Royal Aviation Establishment has been conducting tests on the Elizabethan. What is the focus of these tests, you ask? I do. To see the effects of slush on runways during takeoff and landing. Oh, wow. And what they find is that when there is slush on the runway, it causes the plane to slow from 117 knots to 105 knots, the exact same reductions in speed that Captain Thane reported in his original testimony. Oh my goodness. 
But unfortunately, the 1965 German review is hardly rigorous. They only Hmm. hold hearings over two days. At the conclusion, Reichel denies the the slush theory, refuses to examine the aviation test evidence, and reconfirms the plane crash because of Captain Thane's failure to de-ice the wings. So to them, this matter is over. So this one feels very pro forma to me. This mm-hmm. is this was not, I don't think, a sincere attempt to oh, really re-examine anything. But then something amazing happens in 1967. Britain's most powerful politician, Prime Minister Harold Wilson, happens to be attending a Manchester United football game. And as he's leaving the stadium, the press all swarm around him and he makes a statement. He says that he believes that Captain Thane was a victim of injustice. And as you can imagine, this comment creates a media frenzy. Oh, sure. And it also kicks off the next phase of the investigation. Oh, good. In 1968, British investigators start their own investigation to find out what was really going on. So they immediately find that that photograph, the alleged smoking gun. Yeah wasn't actually ice at all on the wings of the plane. They reviewed the negative of the picture, and it showed that nothing was on the wings. Instead, the white area was actually the reflection of light from a wet surface of the plane, which, of course, made the Germans believe that it was snow. But these results exposed the big blunder of the German report. The report stated that ice on the wings of the aircraft was the sole reason of the crash. It was the captain's duty to clear it off the wings before the final call for takeoff. But on reinvestigation by three separate experts, it appeared that the thick slush on the runway created excessive friction, which contributed to the loss of velocity that prevented the takeoff. So it was the duty of the airport authority to clear the runway, which they failed to do. And lastly, the British identified another witness whose testimony was omitted by Reichel. This witness, Reinhard Meyer, was one of the junior German investigators and also a pilot. And he was there at the night of the crash and saw no ice on the wings. Meyer said he even told Reichel directly the night of the crash that he saw no ice on the wings. Wow. I mean, so what do we what do we think of this? This is not an investigation at all. Not the British investigation, but the German inquiry. Not built on integrity when we're finding all of these witness statements omitted and left out. Well, it's kind of along the lines of one of the things we've seen with some of the international investigations. I think there is that desire to ensure that whatever happens, your people did the right thing. Exactly. And in this situation, it's so evident that they didn't do the right thing. And by the way, I'm also going to say here, things, I don't want to say mistakes happen because not with life and death. You know, you, you can't, there's no room for error in situations like this. But I will say that if their past experience had shown that a plane should have been fine in the amount of slush that would have been there in their best in their opinion, at least, in in whatever you know data that they had, the plane should have been fine, and it wasn't. And of course, there were mitigating factors involved that were very different than what other planes had experienced when taking off in similar conditions. It doesn't change the fact that there is fault here, but the fault's not with the pilot. In this case, the fault is with the airport. Absolutely, and it's it's almost like 
the Germans did not want to back down. It's like we can't admit that we were well, wrong. Well, once you go too far down, exactly. what are you supposed to do? That's I mean, right. you, you've got to kind of defend your, your actions. And, you know, if it means just omitting a little testimony here or there, I understand where the temptation for that would lie. Okay. No, I do not understand omitting it. But I do understand the temptation. Absolutely. So finally, the British government on March of 1969, 11 years after the crash, formally clears James Thane's name. As the official cause, British authorities recorded a buildup of the melting snow on the runway, which prevented the Elizabethan from reaching the required takeoff speed. The outcome, though, is very bittersweet for Captain Thane, who having, of course, been dismissed by BEA shortly after the accident, never flew again. Oh. And shortly after the British investigation, he returned to his poultry farm in Berkshire, and he died of a heart attack at age 53, just six years later. And his family say that the stress and trauma of the crash and the subsequent investigations caused him to pass away so early. Oh, I believe every word of that. He lost more than a decade of his life, of his career, of you know his reputation. Even regaining his reputation is still not quite enough in this case because you think about other situations where maybe somebody was assumed to be guilty but then found to be innocent, they're always mentioned in the context always. of whatever that scenario was. Yes. And you would imagine that in this case, it was the exact same thing, the exact same thing for him. Completely, completely. Regarding the once fallen and then resurrected hero, Captain Thane, one modern day crash investigator who was interviewed during the air disaster episode said that there were 23 victims of the Munich air disaster and Captain Thane was its 24th. And I think that is exactly true. Mm -hmm. Thane's legacy is important. Due to the British investigations into the Munich air disaster, we now have an improved understanding of the dangers of slush. Yeah. And many in aviation believe that Thane's legacy has saved countless lives over the years. But we began this story by focusing on the team at the center of this tragedy, Manchester United. Within 10 years, Matt Busby rebuilt the team and took them to two league championships from the 1964-65 season and the 1967-68 season, as well as the 62-63 FA Cup. The second generation of Busby babes were able to achieve, of course, what their predecessors had set out to do some 10 years before them. But what about the Busby babes who survived? Life actually for most of them was difficult, and this tragedy always loomed large, even for those who had success. And surprisingly, yeah. many of them talked about how they survived this terrible ordeal, only to be abandoned very coldly by the club they loved so much and had done so much for. Jackie Blanchflower survived, but never played football again. In a 1998 interview, he admitted that he never got over not being able to play. He was told eight or nine months after the crash that he couldn't play again. But of course, he didn't want to accept this fate. So he even went to see a specialist in London who unfortunately confirmed the same. At the time, Blanche Flower lived in a house owned by the club. But once it was determined that he would not play again for United, he was asked to vacate it. Oh. The Blanche Flowers said they were treated very harshly by the United club and that they were very cold to them after the crash. He ended his days as an after-dinner speaker and passed away in 1998. 
Like Blanche Flower, Johnny Berry never played again either, having suffered a fractured skull, broken pelvis, and broken jaw that basically necessitated the removal of all of his teeth. While in the hospital, he was so seriously injured that he actually received last rates. Barry received his end of employment notice from the club by post. Oh, wow. He, his wife, and eight-month-old son were also asked to vacate their United-owned home. He died in 1994. United goalkeeper Ray Wood, who died in 2002, played just one first-team game after the crash and was later sold to Huddersfield Town within a year. He spent seven seasons at Huddersfield, playing more than 250 first-team games, although he was unable to help them win promotion to the first division. He continued to play over the next few years, including one season at Bradford City before finishing his career with two seasons at Barnsley. He also ended up coaching the Cyprus and Kenya national football teams. Albert Scanlon, who fractured his skull in the crash, was made bitter when, due to his injuries from the flight, he could no longer make the transfer to the Arsenal team. He explained that the compensation the players received was a few hundred pounds from BEA, the airline. The club did pay their wages while they were injured, but apart from that, he said the club gave the survivors nothing. When he was discharged on crutches from the hospital in Munich, Scanlon returned to Britain, understanding that the taxi he used in the following weeks was being paid for by the club. Club secretary Les Olive, however, advised him to stop using the taxi, informing him that the club wasn't, in fact, footing the bill. Bobby Charlton is regarded as one of the greatest players of all time and was a member of the England team that won the 1966 FIFA World Cup. For years, he suffered from survivor's guilt, wondering why he lived and not others. Mm -hmm. And then there's Harry Gregg, our hero goalkeeper. He spent nine years with the Red Devils, and although he never won a medal with the club, he had an unforgettable career. He eventually left football, held a managerial career, and lived a relatively quiet life. When he died in February of 2020, at the age of 87, he left Bobby Charlton as the only remaining of the original Manchester United Busby Babes. Wow. It wasn't until 1998 that the Manchester United Club staged a benefit match for the survivors of Munich. But here's the thing. After expenses, each of the living survivors or their immediate families received 47,000 pounds, which is about 72,000 in today's dollars. Eric Cantona, who then was the star football attraction that night, and his team received 90,000 pounds for travel and miscellaneous expenses. So right there, you can see that it's very inequitable. Oh, a total disparity between the two. What do you make of the club's treatment of the surviving players? It seems so harsh and cold. What makes me so sad about it is that they were treated like they were disposable. Yes. These are people who clearly gave their heart and soul to this club, to their community, to their team, to everything. And to be treated as if they were disposable, as if you cannot produce for us anymore and so we no longer need you. I feel like there are so many more powerful ways to use those legacies and to allow them to be part of the community. I actually feel like if they had been engaged, they, I mean, people would have rallied around them in an entirely different way. They may have rallied around the entire club in a very different way. I, I'm shocked to hear that that's how they were treated, especially knowing they are the legacy. They should have been celebrated. Completely. They should never have been cast aside and asked to vacate their homes. And 
I mean, that that kind of treatment simply unacceptable. It, it really is. And it's it's really the one of the subsequent tragedies of the, it, the main totally. tragedy. And, you know, it's interesting. So there there's an artist that we both love, Tori Amos. Yeah, oh, of course. She once said about herself, so she was a child prodigy musician, mm-hmm. that she said, I was a thing that could do things. Yeah. And I think that's such a great way sometimes to describe how people of great talent sometimes must feel that they are a tool of utility, right? They're very useful. But to your point, when they no longer serve that purpose, what is their purpose? What Mm -hmm. do people need them for or seek them out for? And I think that's potentially what came to surface here in that treatment of each of those individuals. And I also think it had to do something with the era. It was a time when perhaps we didn't speak about tragedy and sorrow Mm -hmm. and those things the way that we do and encourage it today. Yeah. So as we can see, it's really undeniable how much the crash of Flight 609 forever changed the lives of everyone on board, their families, and the lives of the fans who loved them so much. As one fan in the documentary on this disaster said, We'll never forget them. Never. And that is the story of British European Airways Flight 609, also known as the 1958 Munich Air Disaster. What really strikes me about some of the legacy issue, I guess I'm still kind of stuck on the legacy issue because it really it really bothers me. What it what it gets me thinking about is that we look to people who are famous for what they're famous for, and we don't look at them as being far more complex and having far more dimensions than what they show to us. That makes me so sad through this story. It's so interesting thinking about the legacy of some of the changes that were made, you know, thinking a little bit about how planes react in slush. And it's great to hear about, you know, names being cleared and legacies sort of being restored, knowing there's always sort of that asterisk that comes after it, which is so unfortunate in this case. But what really this speaks to is the fact that we as human beings are so much more than most people will see us for. I'm always kind of looking for bridges from the stories that we tell into real life. And it's very much one of those things. You know, when you're sitting next to somebody at work, and I'm sure someday we'll be sitting next to people at work again. But when you're sitting next to somebody and you're chatting with them, there's so much more to their lives. In fact, oh, gosh, I wish I remembered the word. It's long and complicated. There was this article I was reading a while ago, maybe not really an article, maybe more of a list, and it was the 25 words you didn't know existed, but you wish you knew. Oh, interesting. And I'll, you know what, I'll toss this this one into show notes because this one was kind of cool. And there's a word for what, like kind of that feeling that you get when you walk by someone on the street and realize that they are living a life that is as rich and complex as your own. There's an actual word for that. So visit the website because (laughs) I will link to that article and I will also make sure to call out what that word is. There were, again, 24 other words that were kind of cool as far as, you know, describing a feeling or something. Mm -hmm. You don't have those words, but those words either exist in other languages or it suggests what that might be. But Uh, There is indeed a word for what it feels like to realize that somebody is living an existence that is 
as kind of deep and rich and complex as the one that you're living. That this story reminds me of that. And in fact, I think it it sort of begs all of us to rethink how we treat people and how we view them and how we even if you don't really know them, even if you're thinking about a celebrity, you know, whether it's your favorite sports player or whether it's a musician or something, it kind of challenges you to think about them as being much more than just the singer of your favorite song or the actor in your favorite movie. Yeah, it's really interesting because in these in these stories, a lot of times, if there is a survivor, yeah, we often like to give everyone a peek into their lives after the crash. Yeah. And I think we all want to see that they're happy, that they were well treated, that they didn't have to go through any more of what they just went through. And I think what's heartbreaking in this case is that not in all instances did we hear yeah. that the Busby Babes, the survivors, were treated respectfully, at right. least by the club. I mean, right. I think it's a very narrow treatment, right, specifically mm-hmm. by the club, certainly not by the larger sports world, by fans, etc. But I think that that's a part of the story that is is kind of a letdown, really, you know, and almost in the same way that, like you said, while Captain Thane was cleared, he also died shortly thereafter yeah. because he was overwhelmed by the stress and trauma of right. everything that he had to go through. So you're right. And there's just so much more to people than what we we ever expect. And actually, that's something that you hit upon in episode 14 when you were highlighting the passengers who got on the plane. Yeah. And just kind of what was going on in their lives at the moment that unfortunately they they did lose their lives. I think one of the things that we... maybe even we take for granted with some of these stories is we expect that we're looking in at someone's life on their worst day. Right. And in this story, that wasn't his worst day. His worst day was years and years away. In fact, maybe he had many days that were equally as bad. I'm actually thinking back to one of the first episodes that we did, The Miracle in the Andes. You know, we we had the football team that crashed into the Andes Mountains. And from that story, we know that there were indeed survivors because we had survivor stories. And we know that there were some really happy endings that came from that. But we looked in at their lives on their worst day. Their days were hard while they were stranded there. And they were there a long time. But they got better. And they went on to live happy, fulfilling lives. They went on to professional success. Maybe some to varying degrees, maybe some more than others. But we saw them at their worst and we were excited to see them move on to their best. And in this story, we don't have that. We have we have them at their worst and then we just see them plateau there through no fault of their own. And then to be vindicated so many years later, but not have the ability to live that, you know, to mm-hmm. to enjoy that vindication. Mm-hmm. It just didn't get any better. And that is for me is what makes this story so sad. It, it just is overwhelmingly really sad. sad in some ways and and we're we're really good at bringing sad stories <laughs> we, we, tell, we don't exactly tell happy stories you may have have been able to tell from the fact that we call ourselves the air disaster podcast right. that there aren't going to be a whole lot of moments of joy there are we do find them where they are 
But in this case, yeah, this is a, a tough one because you want that moment of joy. You, I wanted like celebration. I, I wanted, I wanted you to say that these people were heroes and they were beloved and they lived these wonderful lives where they were things like after dinner speakers and they could share their stories. And to know that that's not what they got, and in fact, some case, in some cases, they got nothing but stress that probably contributed to a much earlier passing than they would have had. You know, it, I, I don't know. I guess it challenges all of us to take a look at how we think of people, how we treat people, and how we demonstrate respect to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was a, a very sad one. We are so good at bringing forward sad stories, but I have to say, I feel like I need a drink. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. We really should have like a recommended beverage pairing with right. each one of these. Yes, this one you're going to need a double shot. <laughs> yeah, one of those little airplane-sized bottles, maybe. Oh, yeah. You know, like, remember those? those? Remember those? Uh-huh. Actually, come to think of it, those are kind of gone. Have you heard about this? No. Oh, this is this is sad. There are a number of airlines that are banning alcohol on planes in response to the coronavirus. Oh, brother. Like, kick us while we're down, right? you know? Like, first of all, most of us don't want to be on planes right now. We don't want to be there until we know that there's a really good chance we're not going to get the virus while we're on board. But for those of us who do have to travel, and there are people who are doing long-haul flights for a number of reasons. Yeah, a number of flights. Um, I'm trying to think. Delta, American, um, K- uh, KLM, mm. in, um, they're based in Europe. Yep. They have all banned alcohol on planes at this point. And part of it is because of they're kind of revamping food and drink on airlines right now. We're trying to minimize the number of contact points that passengers are going to have with um, with any of the flight attendants. I mean, that makes sense, but it's still disappointing nonetheless, well, I think. I mean, on one hand, we all have to wear masks on planes. Sure. Yep. And so you can't really drink with the mask anyway. So, <laughs> I mean, I suppose in a way it's like fine. But, you know, there are, there are benefits that they're trying to tout. Like, well, you don't have to go to the bathroom as often. But let's be honest. You know, if you're on a long haul flight, first of all, you're definitely going to have to go. Second of all, there are very few things to look forward to. You've got your movie selection. There are some airlines that do a great job with movie selections. But on top of that, it's frankly the free alcohol. Like you get free alcohol and economy on some of these, well, most of the long haul carriers. Exactly. So, a little bottle of wine on Air France. I mean, my Love it. my thing is after dinner, I have my after dinner drink. I put on my noise canceling headphones, like absolutely love my Bose headphones. <laughs> Turn those on, watch my movie until I fall asleep. Completely. I'm not a good plane sleeper. And if I don't have a glass of wine or something like that, it simply isn't happening. Nope. It's It's not even nerves or anything. It's just I'm not. I don't want to sleep in a seat like that. I'm just I mean, a light sleeper and everything. True. Every every time the cart goes by, every time somebody slams a cabinet door somewhere, I'm like, the I just seat wake belt up. sign, you yes. know, like it's on, it's ding, off, ding. it's on, it's off. <laughs> I like all of that stuff drives me crazy. I can't I can't sleep through that. Yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah. So to think that they're taking away the alcohol, it's like what else? What else? You know, we talk about seeing people at their worst. I bet they're seeing a lot of people at their worst <laughs> in these places. But you know, I do kind of like the idea of coming up with drinks that we should recommend to folks to to get through our stories. (laughs) You know, that that might not be a bad idea. In fact, uh, we we should put that up there. If there's a drink that you find pairs well with episodes of Take to the Sky, we would probably want to hear those from you, too. 
And it's also okay if you don't have to drink at all to to get through our episode. That's a good point. That's a good point. If you're here for the stories, then they probably go well with, you know, cups of tea or a bottle of water or, you know, your your time on the treadmill, you know, whatever (laughs) it happens to be. Well, whatever you are drinking or not, (laughs) thank you so much for giving us some of your time for the latest episode of Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Shelly Price and Stephanie Hubga. So our goal is to help other listeners find us. So don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you listen. Five-star reviews help others to find our podcast. And if you're feeling social, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Take to the Sky Podcast. And also find us on our website at TakeToTheSkyPodcast.com. That's where you'll find our show notes for this episode. And there's also a contact form there for you to submit your own air disaster stories, anything from cancel flights, lost luggage, crazy delays, or maybe you had an interesting experience with other passengers or even the crew. Tell us about it. And most of all, thanks for letting us be a fun distraction. Until next time, be well, everyone. <laughs>